commercial real estate is a government incentivized activity. They gave us a 3.87% interest rate fixed for 12 years, 30-year amortization. And they basically pay 76% of our rehab budget, right? You cannot find that in single family. There's no way, right? If you want to do rehab, you pay out of pocket on single family. They also do all these like incentives that help improve the society in a way. It's pretty beautiful like how they align what's good for society with the economic incentives. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Perry Zhang. Perry is a real estate investor and syndicator who still works full-time as an engineer at a large tech company. In this episode, we'll talk about starting a real estate investment business while holding a full-time job as well as tips on how to raise funds for your deals. So if you have a full-time job and you want to learn how to get into the real estate investment industry, you need to listen to this episode. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, Contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Perry, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Sure. Hi, my name is Perry. I'm a syndicator. I'm also a engineering manager at Lyft. I've been on Lyft for about four years. I started doing syndication about a year and a half ago, and I've been in the real estate for about five years now. That's awesome. And the reason why I wanted to have you on the show is because you're one of the few guests who is still actively working in a high-tech job and a pretty senior position while doing real estate on the side. So can you go ahead and tell us your real estate investing journey and how you got started? Sure. So I was working as a software engineer in the Bay Area when I bought my first condo in San Francisco. At that time, I knew nothing about investing per se. I just thought by buying a house, my rent, quote unquote, is cheaper than if I were to really rent. So I bought a three bedroom, rent out the other two bedrooms, and I live in the master room. And the rent was equivalent is as if I was renting somewhere else. And then I was like, okay, this is not that hard. I just sacrificed a little bit of my lifestyle to get that. So I moved to the medium-sized room. And then finally, before I went back to Seattle, and now I'm in Seattle, by the way, uh, I moved into the smallest room. So that kind of got me hooked on house hacking. So then I came back to Seattle. I bought a house. And then about a year later, I bought another house. The same idea, buy a house with five bedrooms, live in one, and rent out the other four, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and that's kind of how I start accumulating single houses that way in Seattle. And when you were house hacking, did you have like a significant other or were you living basically by yourself? Uh, it's a good question. I think everyone has a personal competitive advantage. And my competitive advantage is I am single and I can live with roommates. And I've been living with roommates for most of my life. 
Yeah, I'm actually doing the same strategy right now where I have a house here in the Bay Area as well and I house hack every single room to my friends from Los Angeles. So when we all moved up after college, I said, hey, come through as well. You can live in one of my rooms. And then as the years gone by, you know, some of the guys move out with their girlfriends and then I have to replace them with someone else. And actually, eventually now I'm going to, they're all leaving actually around the same time. So we're going to make everything into an Airbnb. So instead of trying to find one at a time, I'm just going to say, all right, it's open to the public. Let's go. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. How were you able to find your roommates? So good question. I changed my strategy over the years. Initially, I I always rent out to people on Craigslist because the types of houses I got are not in downtown Seattle. In order to cash flow in Seattle, you have to kind of buy about 15 minutes away from the core area. And I always found my roommates on Craigslist. They're about like $750 to $850 a room. Um, and in downtown, every room is like eleven to twelve hundred dollars. And over the years, I've become more conscious of my relationship with my tenants. I try to put some kind of distance between me and my tenants. What that means is I try not to become their closest friends. My first house, we chill together. It's a very social house. I, we cook with them. We we hang out and all that stuff. It went well. But there's always something in the back of my mind. It's like, what if one day they decide, decide to say, hey, can I pay like five days late, 10 days late? So in the next few houses, I kind of start distancing myself a little bit. And so the type of roommates I have tend to be more reserved and introverted. They tend to stay in their room, and which is something I kind of like. Yeah, they don't bother you. And did you do like an interview process before letting them in? Or is it kind of like first come, first serve? It's usually first come, first serve. What I notice is as long as someone is financially responsible, have a good credit score, and have a good like background check, usually they turn out well. Like for whatever reason. Like if they are clean and financially responsible, they usually are okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not looking for a specific personality per se, but it's I don't know, it just works that way. Yeah, and I totally feel you with um, having that close relationship because, you know, some of my buddies here, you know, they're late. All right, whatever. And also because they're my friends, I'm like, do I really want to raise on them, right? So actually, I, I don't. I just say, okay, we're going to do, uh, you know, utility share now or something like that. But usually I only increase the rent when someone leaves and a new person comes in. I see. Yeah. Do you still own your property in San Francisco? Oh, it's a good question. So one of the best things I did about two years ago was I joined the syndication group and I know I want to go into multifamily. I, when I left San Francisco, I still rent out room by room, but it became such a headache. It was just because in order to show a room, I have to ask my roommate to go downstairs and get the tenant in. I cannot have a property manager because that would be too expensive. And then after some point, I'm like, there's some equity in the house and there's not much I can do with the house. It's not even cash flowing per se. So I decided to sell it. And that was just like first time luck. I bought it for $750. I sold it for $900. But that's just not because I was I bought it correct. It's just like I was at the right time at the right place. That was one of the best decisions I made because it gave me the liquidity to kind of scale up, to go into multifamily and others. Yeah, let's talk about that journey into syndication because when I hear syndication, I think, all right, some big shot investor who has access to a lot of funds buying these giant complexes out in the middle of nowhere. You are a Lyft manager. You know, you work full time at a very intense high tech job. How are you able to do syndication and what even led you to syndications in the first place? Sure, sure. So 
Yeah, you're right. The workload I live is intense. I work usually about 50 plus hours a week. There are a few things I want to say to that. One is out of necessity. I've been buying single family once a year, and I have basically six single families in Seattle and San Francisco. And we also did a like a small seven unit multifamily. And so at some point, I'm not going to qualify for a loan for the single family. And, you know, and these are big loans. They're, these are like $600,000, $500,000 loans, right? Like at some point, I'm just like max out my debt to income ratio. And that's the first reason that I cannot keep doing single families. And then the second reason is I don't have a way to sell my knowledge. You accumulate this knowledge and you're not getting a premium for it, right? So I want to be able to like use my knowledge to help other people. And then the third is I know I'm going to be in real estate. And then the one that, so we actually did a few things before that. I met my business partner in San Francisco. We bought a couple of single families in Seattle, actually. We also bought the seven unit together. And when we tried to scale up from that seven unit in Seattle to buying a 20 unit in Seattle, and a 20 unit is like $200,000 per unit. So it's $3.2 million. And that was the turning point. We didn't get that deal. And we asked the broker why we didn't get that deal. And they said that, you know, you guys are amazing, but the other syndicator has uh, $19 million of assets in Seattle. They have a property management company themselves. You cannot just compete with the big dogs, right? In order to get the deal, you may be able to offer $50,000 more to get it, but are you going to put in 50K more? And then my business partner and I were thinking, wow, for that 50K, we may also just pay a syndication group to get that knowledge so we can use that 50K for all the deals that we do instead of just paying a premium for this particular deal. So we know about you know the syndication group in Texas. So literally that time, uh, that was my second time going to that event. I know why when I'm going to sign up. It doesn't matter what that person say, I'm going to sign up. It turned out to be a great decision because the first syndication we did was a 172 unit, like 172 unit, 13.5 million in Texas. Like never why I have thought that this first syndication is that big because usually it's like, okay, let's start with 60 units, 70 units and so on and so forth. So yeah, it was a risk, but I felt like it paid off. Yeah, that's crazy from like uh, losing out on a $3.4 million deal or something like that to getting a 13 plus million dollar deal. You want to talk about how that whole thing came about and also, did you guys do all the fundraising yourself or did you use the like network from that group you joined to be able to syndicate that $13 million? Yeah, yeah. So the deal is 13.5. We need to raise about 4.3. We raise a portion of it from the group. We raise maturity outside of the network. And at that time, I got lucky in the sense that the lift uh were IPO. So I raised some from my coworkers and previous coworkers and my friend circle are all the high tech people. So for them, fifty thousand dollars is not that much money and it's a way for them to diversify because a lot of their money is in stocks. And it's not like I just joined this like, you know, guru group and like pyramid skin trying to like, oh I'm in real estate now. I've been in real estate for like the last three, four years. So they kind of know that, okay, Perry is working on it. Perry is accumulating single families and it took a whole year. So during that whole year, 
people ask me, hey, what are you being up to? Yeah, I'm looking at deals, but I couldn't find any because it's so competitive out there. So they kind of get like prepared for it. Yeah. So most of it is from my kind of friends and family and coworkers and previous coworkers. And can we talk about the timeline from when you joined this group to, I guess, I guess joining the group was like the pivot point for you because now you're, your brain unlocked and you're like, I can look at places that aren't within my, you know, near vicinity. I can look at places out of state. And then I'm sure you were like calling brokers, trying to find deals. That takes time, right? To build relationships and get deals. Yep. But in the meantime, you're also talking to coworkers and saying, hey, if I do have a deal, are you down to commit 50000 for a share in the LLC? I don't say that. I never ask people for say, if I have a deal, would you invest 50000 I should never say that. I just, they will ask me, hey, like what you're working on? I'm like, yeah, I'm looking into Texas and we're looking for a multifamily there. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. I'm like, yeah, I'm flying down every month on the weekend. Like every month I fly down once, like network, go check out properties. And they're like, oh, that's super interesting. Like, let me know when you found something because I'll be interested in investing. Like, they don't even know how much is the minimum. Like, they volunteer to invest, like 95% of the time. That's the best way. When you're not pitching them, they're like, oh, yeah, I, I have money. Let me give it to you so you can invest it for me. Yeah. And part of it is reputation. I think I have a good reputation at work. I know I'm genuine and I don't try to oversell things. Uh, so that helps. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if, well, I guess you kind of explained it because I was going to say that if I was asking my coworkers for money, this could seem like an awkward conversation, but I guess you're framing it in a way of, oh, well, I'm doing this thing, I'm an opportunity, and they're the ones who actually approach you. So it's not awkward at all because you're just accepting their money. So yeah, one thing to comment is a lot of people do ask me, hey, do I need to send out these like monthly emails or like quarterly emails to say, hey, this is what we've been up to. We've been looking at deals and these other like, oh, and by the way, Merry Christmas, all that stuff. And I'm like, I don't do that. I It, it just looks a little bit thick. And if I have a deal, I'll blast it. But if I don't, I wouldn't say anything like on the email. But while getting lunch and dinner with people, they will ask me what you've been up to. I don't really talk about what's happening at work. I talk about what I'm doing in Texas all the interesting things I'm learning. And so they know that I'm very passionate about it and that piqued their interest. The downside of doing this is you don't know how much you can raise until you do raise. So I always like say, oh, I can probably raise like a one to $2 million. $2 million is a stretch. It turned out I can raise like 3.5. It's like, wow, I kind of overdid myself. So yeah, that's the downside. You don't know. But even if you can send out those emails, I also don't feel like you can guarantee anything because people can commit, but they will withdraw the last minute. So none of that is, you got to get a lot of false positives. That's true. I mean, especially right now, for when this recording gets sent out, right now we're kind of in the peak of our coronavirus scare where everything's locked down. I'm sure people were super interested in getting into some real estate deals even two weeks ago, and now they probably changed their minds just because it's like such a scary time. Absolutely. And do you want to tell us the story about the project itself? Like how long did it take you to actually find this deal and what made that specific deal attractive to you? Uh, sure. So we talked to a lot of brokers and I just a side tangent. I set my schedule in a way that before nine o'clock, I can talk to the brokers in Texas because they are two hours ahead of us. So basically by 11 a.m. Central time, I finish all my talking. And then after nine o'clock, I can just go to work. 
And so that took about like a month or two months or even more. And commercial brokers specifically, you know, they are very professional. They know their numbers and they want to see how capable you are in the middle of a deal. They don't put up with fluff. You can say all you want, but like make an offer, then we will talk about it. So the way to get to know them is just keep making offers, get into the best and final, get outbid, and then ask them, oh, like, what can I do better? That's essentially asking them like, hey, why did you give me the deal? And how can I win it next time? So after you lose the deal, you take them out to like lunch and coffee and say, hey, what can I do better? Like, what are the insider you know, information that I should have known? Stuff like that. It's a very unfair playing field because the people who have deals, they have an insider like back channel. And so that took about six months. So from the time we joined the program to the time that we have a deal, it's one year. And on that specific deal, why do we like it? Uh, my personal opinion is I like something with good location and good traffic because that is something that is like you cannot change. Operation, you know, landscape, physical appeal, curb appeal, efficiency, that's under your control. But how much the car, how many cars are going to pass by, that you cannot control. The neighborhood. So this particular property has a ton of traffic. It's like 35,000 cars pass by every day or something along those lines. That's the number one criterion. And then the second one is it's huge value app. Lots of upgrades that we can make. A lot of exterior upgrades. We're spending about $8,000 per door on those units, every single one of those units. That includes interior and exterior. And that's quite a lot for Texas. And then the last is, yeah, like the first one is good location. Second one is there's value to add. And then the third one is it's in a good sub-market. Like DFW is just a strong sub-market. It's a kind of a resistant proof sub-market. Yeah, so those three things kind of make me feel like we cannot lose on this deal. Yeah. And then it fulfills all the criteria such as they are like at least 8% cash and cash, 70% total return over the course of five years with like super, super conservative underwriting. But a lot of those numbers is you don't know, like, yeah, you can think, you can project all you want, but when you actually get in the middle of it, none of those assumptions are not necessarily true, but you're still within that range. Yeah, they're not guaranteed, but at least you underwrite with, uh, you know, quote unquote conservative assumptions. Um, when you're talking about $8,000 per door, did you budget that in your capital raise? Yes, yes. So it was a 13.5 is the purchase price. We're putting in $1.4 million of capex. And so it's about basically $15 million deal. And our leverage is 76% LTC, which is 76% of $15 million. Wow. That's amazing. And do you want to talk more about that loan? Because I think that most people listening to this show don't really know how commercial loans work. Yeah. So commercial real estate is a government incentivized activity. Government really, really likes commercial real estate professionals. They gave us a 3.87% interest rate fixed for 12 years, 30-year amortization. And they basically pay 76% of our rehab budget, right? You cannot find that in single family. There's no way, right? If you wanna do rehab, you pay it out of pocket on single family. They also do all these like incentives that help improve 
the society in a way. It's pretty beautiful, like how they align what's good for society with the economic incentives. How do we get that low interest rate? We did it also partially because we did the green program, which is if you can save X amount of gallons of water and save improve the electricity by 15%, then you get a reduction of like 0.25% in interest rate, something of that sort. So it incentivizes the owners to put in more water efficient toilets and like safe, create LED light bulbs and install these like a uh, small thermostats. So the interest rate is just, the fact is so low, it's because government really likes real estate professionals in multifamily. That's really cool. That was a little small tricks to lower your rate. Is this considered a Freddie Mac small balance loan or is it something else? So this is a Fannie Mae loan. It is Fannie Mae agency non-recourse loan. Uh, non-recourse means that you are not personally liable for paying off the entire loan. There are some caveats. For example, if you committed a fraud or there's like there are like 12 bad boy carve outs. If you commit a fraud, if you misrepresent financials, et cetera, then you are responsible for paying up like for the loan. And this non-recourse or recourse only plays a role if you go into foreclosure. So there are like multiple layers of protection. If you don't go into foreclosure, you just sell it, right? But it's the best loan out there because it's not recourse. It's fixed rate, unlike a bridge loan, which is like variable interest rate. And it incentivizes you to like do water conservation and renovation. So it's like the best loan possibly out there. Yeah, it sounds really cool. And for those of you who are listening, who don't really understand some of the terms, I just want to go over it real quickly. So we said it's a 12-year loan, which obviously means that in 12 years, you need to either refinance or get a new loan or you know pay, sell it, whatever. Mm-hmm. But 30-year amortization just means that it's as if you had a 30-year loan, you're paying on that kind of a principal slash interest schedule where in the beginning you're paying mostly interest and over time you're paying principal but after 12 years the loan is up you're not expected to have paid off the loan it's supposed to be paid off over 30 years yeah just for the listeners there are two things as well the other really nice thing about multifamily is you get this thing called interest only or io and depending on the shape and condition of the property you can get anywhere from one year of io to like five years of io uh, we got three years of interest only. And so that's really powerful. And whenever the bank wants to give you IO, you always take it because it's always better to have the cash in your bank than paying the bank. Exactly. You want interest only for sure because your monthly payments are lower and it's great during this like stability period when you're spending $8,000 per door to renovate the entire structure. Yeah. The other one I want to follow on is in multifamily, usually you cannot do a refinance that's because like, if you do a refinance, you have to pay a pretty hefty prepayment penalty. So what most people do is you do a supplemental on top of that initial loan. And when you try to sell it, usually you ask the, the buyer to assume the loan and then they will do a supplemental on top. It's essentially the same. It's just a little bit more paperwork. Now, obviously, uh, sometimes the buyer actually wants to buy it with a new debt because maybe the interest rate is all-time low. They just have to create two spreadsheets for each scenario. Yeah, exactly. And a supplemental loan is basically just getting more debt so they can leverage it. Yep. Yeah, that's basically it. And when you were saying your loan was a 76% LTC, I didn't catch that at first. 
And I didn't realize that they're actually paying for your construction as well, 76% of it. So are you guys doing it in terms of draws as well, where you put in some money and then you show them your phase, whatever's done, and they pay you back? Yeah. So that's a great question, actually. That's one of the most challenging things about kind of this whole setup. You have a working capital, let's say like $300,000. You have to spend that money doing renovations. And then you have to ask the lender to give that money back, displaying that you have completed the work. So you always kind of like limited to this operating capital, like how much you can spend at any given time. And the reason that the lender does that, because a lot of uh, syndicators out there will be like, why is it so strict? Why can't I like just use whatever money I want? Why do I have to like, I can only get certain amount in each category. Why are they strict about it? It's because Fannie Mae sells this portfolio of security to other investors on the market. And if you try to say, use the money that's reserved for interior upgrades and use it for foundations, then you change the composition of that security. And so they can no longer sell that security. It will be a breach of contract in a way. So that's why they are so adamant about like each line item needs to match up. And so it presents some accounting challenges. It's all these things that you don't know until you get into multifamily. Exactly. I mean, that's why when I do my own flips, I prefer to use cash for my construction because I hate construction loans. I mean, it's the same thing, but on a bigger scale for you guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And how challenging was closing on the property? Were there any stories about things almost not going through? Are there stories about things not going through? It was a relatively smooth process, but it was nerve wracking because it was our first time. So what I recommend is if it's your first time, go to a trusted lender, someone who has done this many, many times, and they like to work with a first timer. So we went with O Capital. They are a broker, but they are just super on top of things. They teach us what to do and you want that, you know? So yeah, we close on time. We close without issues and it was pretty smooth. They have a great podcast, by the way. When I was interested in the whole syndication thing, I was listening to Michael Blanca and Old Capital all the time. Yeah. All right, that's good. So it seems like everything went by pretty smoothly. You guys closed in, I'm guessing, 60 days? Yeah, we closed in 60 days. Okay. And then how long after that to do the renovations and stabilize? We closed this in September, and now it's about March. So it's about six months since we acquired it. During that six months, we completed about 80 to 85% of our renovations. And so it's looking really good. We finished the renovations, but the units are coming online slowly. So we finished most of the exterior work, but the interior is still, it's an ongoing process. Did you have to displace the current tenants when you were doing the renovations? And how did you negotiate that? So it's actually not hard in Texas, actually. So we basically do one building at a time, one building, eight units. Okay, so they move. And then we finish those eight units. We ask the other tenants in our building kind of move into this building and so on and so forth. And that's one of the things I like about Texas. It's a very tenant. It's very landlord friendly. So you can ask them to, you know, leave anytime you want. And we have enough vacancies in the building. Usually the ideal occupancy, physical occupancy is about 95%. So 172 units it means we always usually have about, you know, like seven, eight units vacant. So we can always ask them to move into those vacant units, do the renovation and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's something I learned because in Seattle, 
literally when you buy a 20 unit, you have to let all the tenants out. The whole building is empty. You do the renovations and then move the people in, right? It doesn't work like that. Mm, that's good to know. And, you know, I guess they're cool with moving. It's better than getting kicked out and having no place to live. Sure. Yeah. Oh, cool. And uh, so you guys are almost done. And are you guys starting to increase rents over time or what's your strategy for that? Got it. So we have performa rents and we're hitting those performa rents really easily. In fact, we're thinking for the truly renovated units, the really nicely done, we are going to charge a premium on top of what we projected. So, but given the coronavirus situation, we may hold off on that for a few months because the next few weeks or months is very, very unpredictable. That's true. And are they like... Is it just the original tenant base who are just paying more or are they leaving and a new person is coming in to then pay those higher rents? It turned out that existing tenants, maybe about 60% of them are paying themselves. And then the 40% are like, okay, this is too high. The truth is if they go anywhere in that one mile radius, they're not going to find necessarily a, a better rent because we're literally doing the renovation and we're like on par with our competition. That's how we underwrite it. And that's what we're going to stick with. So it's not like they can find a better deal for the same type of quality. Yeah. So you're not even like making it super expensive. You're just kind of bringing it up to par when it was maybe a new property or something like that. Exactly. Cool. And did you have a boots on the ground team in Texas when you were doing all of this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. I cannot do it without a boots on the ground. So I got lucky with a really good business partner. We met in San Francisco. His name is Ed. So we joined the program together and he was going to move to Seattle and do flips with me. But then after we joined the program, he goes to live in Texas, Dallas, just because we need to do syndication. So he's the boots on the ground. He does this full time and he underwrites deals all day. He goes to check out the property. He's the asset manager. Well, I'm doing some asset management as well. So he's the day to day, the back office, everything. Without a boots on the ground and someone you trust, it's really, really difficult to make things work. For example, you need to make an offer. You want to drive by it before making an offer. And so if you're doing something, you know, like in Cincinnati or like Midwest, which could be great numbers, it's just not possible to do it. You know, like it's so, there are like all kinds of random things. Because we are trying to do renovation fast, we have multiple crews. And so sometimes the property manager gets confused. Okay, who is this crew? Who is that crew? It's so nice to have an asset manager going there. So, oh yeah, like they are doing that. This is doing that. It's just, yeah, there's no way. And there are, yes, it's multifamily is, you know, doing 172 single families is a lot more work than operating a 172 unit apartment building. But it's no means easy because every day there's some stuff coming up. So I cannot be responding to emails throughout the day. So I'm very lucky, yeah. And you need that on the boots on the ground. Don't try to do it by yourself if you have a full-time job. And in fact, don't even do it by yourself even if you don't have a full-time job. You, It gets lonely because there are certain things that you cannot really like talk to anyone about. And it's like you can only talk to your business partner about. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. I, I actually went to Cincinnati a couple of years ago and I went to a place in Alabama like Birmingham and Huntsville. And, you know, on LoopNet, you see these beautiful buildings with like amazing cap rates on paper. And I think, man, I want this building. I'm going to buy it. And then you drive there and you feel very uncomfortable getting out of your car. Yep. So you can't get that just from a picture online. So you, you really do have to have someone out there. Yeah. 
Do you want to talk about how you met your partner and why he was just down to move to Dallas from San Francisco? It's really interesting. We met on BiggerPockets.com. I was one of those noobs back then. I'm like, I'm trying to buy something in the Bay Area. Nothing ever works. Like, what am I doing? I listen to all your shows, but nothing ever works. And you know, a few people kind of responded, and he and I just—he was one of the people who responded. So we met up for coffee. He showed me how to underwrite a single family. So that one coffee turned into multiple coffees. And then all of a sudden, I'm meeting up with him like every Saturday to look at deals. It turned out that we cannot make San Francisco numbers work, Bay Area numbers work. Then I was like, okay, I came from Seattle, by the way. So I was like, I want to go back to Seattle anyway. So let's look at Seattle. So that's kind of how it started. And I mean, what was he doing full time to be able to just pick up and leave like that? He was a paralegal, and he did some like turnkey properties in the Midwest. So after two or three years of doing that, he wanted to focus on real estate full time anyway. And so initially it was flips, but now it's just like I want to be full time multifamily. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. It's pretty crazy, yeah. Like last minute, I was like, okay, well, he's like, okay, then I'll go to Dallas because it's better that way. I'm like, wow. Yeah, I mean that's really gutsy. I mean, I, I, I do this full-time too, but I don't even know if I would move full-time just to do uh, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Were there any challenges throughout this whole process? Every month, there are new challenges. So it depends on like the most recent one or the most painful one. I don't even remember what's the most painful one. So what's next for you guys? Next is, you know, because of this COVID-19 situation, we're looking for deals. We are making offers. We don't know when we'll get the next offer, right? Because we need to be a lot more conservative now. But our goal is to do one deal a year and then scale it up to maybe two deals a year. One of the things is my business partner doesn't have a job. So he kind of depends on this. Uh, whereas I, I have a job. So, you know, but I want to make the best use of his time. And he's very motivated to get something, right? Uh, I'm very motivated as well. Because at one point, I do want to be able to like match my W-2 income. And then, you know, because a long term, I do want to do this full time and, you know, do some combination of technology and real estate. Yeah. I mean, that's the best, especially if you come from a strong background, like with Lyft, then even when it comes to like, you know, getting funding, you can say, hey, I have a Lyft background and a real estate background. Let's make something happen. Yep. Yeah. Very cool. So do you have any tips for any busy tech employees who want to get into real estate? Yeah, that's a great question. I've been thinking about what makes me able to juggle two things. And I think there are a few reasons. First is I try to optimize for efficiency. Now, intrinsically, I'm a super lazy person. And I tend to also sleep a lot and get a lot of rest. I don't feel like I'm working that hard. But I try to optimize for every little thing that try to optimize efficiency in every area that I can. So to give you an example, like these all little things, I have a maid that cleans my room. I don't clean my room. Like I basically outsource that. I usually do like restaurant takeout instead of cooking. Uh, I try to, uh, if I want to eat healthy, uh, my parents also live in Seattle. They live in a different house. So they also cook for me, right? So they will cook like these many dishes and I will have to like scoop a little bit of each dish into my bowl and then I will like microwave it. 
And then afterwards, I need to wash all these dishes and all that. I'm like, okay, well, then I go to Amazon, I buy these bento boxes. So they put different kinds of food in the one single box. But that's one thing is that I hate washing dishes. I don't want to spend five minutes a day or two minutes a day washing dishes. Let's combine these dishes into one dish. Uh, that's one little thing. The other one is I don't like microwaving for five minutes and then microwave another dish for five minutes. So I bought a microwave. And yeah, like it's really weird. I spend time thinking about those things. Okay. Microwave costs me 60 bucks. I save, say, two minutes a day. Uh, that's like, you know, 10 minutes a week. And then 10 minutes a week, multiply that by like, you know, like a whole month. That's like, you know, that's like 50 minutes. My time is worth more than that 50 minutes a week or something along those lines. So I was like, okay, I'll buy a new microwave just so I can get rid of this problem. So that's one thing, you know, all the laundry stuff is taken care of. My room is beautiful. Yeah. And then keyboard shortcuts. I have all these like text replacements that like signs my signature and then like these templates what I post on Craigslist. And then lastly, I have this virtual assistant that literally does everything for me, like going from bookkeeping to like writing down business cards to even like go through the real estate training course for me. Like, okay, I have like three episodes. I know how to take the exam. I can finish it, but just click through those slides for me. So I try to automate as much as I can. And yeah, I would rather spending time like typing up the instructions and then all these like posts on Craigslist. I try to optimize for efficiency. And I spend a lot of time thinking about how I can optimize. That doesn't mean that I work all the time. I would rather spend time walking around a lake or hanging out with a friend or playing poker. I like playing poker with friends than trying to do these manual tests. There's a difference. It's not like, oh, I optimize everything and then I'm working 100%. I'd rather save that time for the manual stuff and spend the time having fun. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're basically saying that uh, you will outsource everything you hate so you can spend all the time you want on things you love. Yeah. Even if that means that you're quote unquote wasting your time because you, it's fun, right? Yep. And ultimately what you're saying is you want to optimize for systems. You want to have systems in play so that your life is optimized. Yeah. Even if that means spending a little bit extra on having two microwaves instead of just one. That's hilarious. Yeah. Because you do the math. It's like, why am I spending two minutes a day on this? Yeah, very nice. All right, do you have anything else you want to say to our listeners before we end our show today? I think the biggest one is, I think I'm intrinsically motivated. So a lot of times we go to these seminars and we try to say, uh, like, how to pump yourself up? You know, like, how do you have a mindset? But I feel like I just kind of intrinsically have it. I don't know how I got taught, but I just have it. And so, but I do realize that the ultimate success really depends on how much you want it. Because I want it bad enough, you start thinking about creative ways to get it, even if you don't have capital. And when you do have capital, you're very strategic on how you spend it. And so in life, I, you need to hold something constant. Like hold something constant and then everything else will be a follow instead of like keep questioning that constant thing. So make something that you know it has to happen. Say, you know, I want to buy a single family or I want to buy a multi-family. Just fixate it. It's like, be obsessed with it. And then, like, try to do everything you can to make it a reality. Only after, like, half a year, or you can set a cadence. Like, every two months, I'll reevaluate or not. Do you, like, go back on your work? Because, yeah, I don't need to go to these seminars to, like, oh, I want to buy a multi-family. Why is it so beautiful? Because I just want it. And then because I want it, I work my whole schedule to get it. Yeah. 
Consistency is key in this business because you have to stay in the game long enough for people to know who you are, to like you, to even give you the deal in the first place. Yeah. I think people give up too early sometimes when in reality you just need to stay in a little bit longer. Yeah, my friends did tell me, uh, one of the also really successful real estate investors, they told me, well, I have seen real estate investors come and go, but people who after two or three years are still in it, I can recognize that they are staying here for the long run. And you know, after three or four years, if you still want to do it, yeah, you're probably going to stay here for the long haul. You know, there are a lot of people who come to my meetup groups. They're relatively new real estate investors and they're super excited because they probably just came out of a seminar or they heard some podcasts like this one. And, you know, they're really motivated, but you don't see them after two or three months. They kind of disappear. And especially with this whole like coronavirus situation, who knows, right? There might be some people who've been trying to do it for six months and they realize, man, it's not a good time. And then they, they leave. So we'll see how this whole thing shakes up and who remains after everything settles. Yeah. To me, that's a very exciting time in real estate. You know, definitely a trying time for all the people who are suffering or like inconvenience. But in real estate, this could be a great opportunity in a few months or a year. I think it's very interesting to just see it because, you know, we I haven't seen this. I've heard about it when I was in college about the whole great financial crisis. But yeah, seeing it in real life and being in like a SARS type situation, this is very, very interesting. I see. Yeah. Anyways, Perry, thank you so much for your time. How can people get in contact with you? You can add me on Facebook, Perry Zeng. People use Facebook a lot nowadays for real estate. LinkedIn is for my professional life. And or contact me through email, perry.zeng, Z-H-E-N-G, 2010 at gmail.com. Perfect. All right. Well, Perry, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. If you want to be a real estate investor while holding a full-time job, you need to find an amazing partner who will be willing to do the tasks that you need to do while you're busy at the office. If you want to get into multifamily syndications, it might be best to work with a large syndication company for your first few deals to get experience. Raising funds can also be challenging, but if you can frame it as an opportunity, then people will reach out to you when you have a good deal. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, Join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everything REI. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.